Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Hey YA. From great new books to favorite classic reads, from news stories to the latest in on-screen adaptations, Hey YA is here to elevate the exciting world of young adult lit. Hey YA is a book riot podcast hosted by Erica Ezzafetti and me, Tears of Price. We are recording this episode on October 6th. Hello, Erica. Hey, hey, hey. How are you? I'm great. How about you? I'm doing well. I have been smacked in the face with fall temperatures. I think we discussed that last time. It's gotten more intense, but I'm here for it. (laughs) Yes, I... I'm currently in Iowa where like we kind of get like some trees go all out with the fall colors, but mm-hmm. mostly things just fade into yellow and then fade into brown. And it's really sad because I'm from <laughs> Michigan and we have glorious fall colors. Oh, wow. But I'm excited because this weekend I'm going back to Michigan for a scant 36 hours for my mm. sister-in-law's wedding. And mm-hmm. we are going to be in like, it's it's like the perfect time for the perfect colors. So I'm very excited. <gasps> yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. Oh my Just God. That's amazing. All the fall feelings. <laughs> yes. Perfect. Perfectly fall. I'm glad you get to see the, the foliage. yes i know it's something i definitely took um for granted Mm -hmm. until i moved to a place where like we don't really have spectacular fall foliage so this is interesting i always thought most places well i know nothing about trees i mean and they're (laughs) actually like where they're found geographically so let me not even put my foot in my mouth. I have no idea. I'm sure there's like a very scientific reason for, yes. for why things tend to fade rather than have like an intense fall season of, yeah. of glorious color. But yeah, I don't yeah. know it. I was an English major. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, you don't get it. You don't get this here. It's just not available. It's not this just, edition. Yeah. yeah. Science. Oh, but yes. So I'm excited about today's topic because it feels very on brand for us. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So on brand for me. So very on brand. Oh, yay. But I guess before we dive into that, we should share some news Mm -hmm. and probably hear from our first sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 
and she's like the best she's brilliant charismatic quick-witted funny they fall in love but the thing is she's number six so if he is to have seven great loves does that mean his time with Elena is going to come to an end so this is a love letter to western pop culture eastern traditions and being a first generation new yorker make sure to check it out and thanks again to flat iron books publisher of 888 love and the divine burden of numbers by abraham chang for sponsoring this episode <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo. This is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books, and so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high-stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players, but what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive, even the help of Guillén Santangel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. And like I said, it's a must read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at LeeBardugoTheFamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo for sponsoring this episode. All right, so the news for this week, I guess we got two pieces because the first is that um, the National Book Award finalists have now been narrowed down. And Mm -hmm. two weeks ago, we talked about the long list, which was excellent. But the finalists have um, three YA books on it. Um, so it is those YA books are The Lesbiana's Guide to Catholic School by Sonora Reyes, which um, if you yeah. recall, I love, 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 loved. A Victory Stand, Raising My Fist for Justice by Tommy Smith, Derek Barnes, and Dawad Anya Wile. And that is a graphic nonfiction book, which I have not read yet, but I did get in at my library. So I'm excited to check that out. Nice. And All My Rage by Sabata here, which I can see my copy from where I'm sitting, but I have not read yet. <laughs> so those are the three YA books on the shortlist, um, as, as well as Maisie Chen's Last Chance by Lisa Yi and The Ogress and the Orphans by Kelly Barnhill, which are both middle grade books. I forget that they, well, I didn't forget. I, I feel like they would split the young people stuff up. I think we we talked about that briefly last time. I wish they would, but I do yeah. wonder if it's partly like a funding issue because right. I don't think like, like I think that this award is very much like sponsor funded. Right. And like there's the National Book Award Foundation. So like they have money, obviously, but it's probably very costly to add another award and they did recently add translated literature and by recently i mean within like the last five or so years that is pretty recent yeah but young people like so i don't guess for people who don't know if you win the national book award you get ten thousand dollars which is cool that's a lot of money it's not as much money as some very heavy hitter literary (laughs) awards like the kirkus prize awards fifty thousand dollars which sign me up I listen. 
<laughs> right. But then the um, the finalists also get, I think, like $5,000. So, you know, you're talking about adding like finding $30,000 to add an award. That's true. That's a good point. That's <laughs> nothing to sneeze at. I wish they'd split them up. I, if I had $30,000 to give every year, I'd be like, hey, make them separate. Because yeah. I think that there's so much fantastic wipe literature out there there's so much fantastic children's lit out there they don't really do picture books but like if they wanted to do like you know literature novels or nonfiction length because that's the other thing too is young people's literature it's also fiction and nonfiction, and they don't do that with adult fiction and nonfiction. they they get separate awards so but i think we could split hairs all day (laughs) yeah that's true yeah it's just like Children's and YA is such a different, but I, I, you make a good point. It's not even just the 10,000 for the winner. It's everyone has to get the finalists and everything. So that is adding quite a lot of money. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe in the future they will. Maybe, maybe I, we'll see. I think that in recent years, like the national book awards have done a lot to kind of elevate their profile. Like, I don't know about you, but like, 10 years ago, I wasn't like watching the live stream and, and like following it religiously. Now I do. And I think that they've done a lot to elevate their image. So interesting. I hadn't even thought about it. But yeah, I feel like years before I wasn't necessarily checking for them. Yeah. yeah. They they live stream their award ceremony now. So you can watch it in real time. And the award ceremony looks kind of swanky and fun. Mm. And they get celebrity guests to host. Like I know Nick Offerman did one year. Um, I'm blanking on who else has done it. But like celebrities do it. So that's kind of cool. That is kind of cool, actually. Yo, yeah. the, the PR is PRing over there. <laughs> right. Whoever their team is, they're doing it. They understand they the assignment. Yes, yes, they're doing a great job. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, next month will be the ceremony. So we'll drop the date in the show notes, but you can see who wins. I have my suspicions about who I think will win, but I'm going to like keep that under my hat just because okay. I don't want to like hurt anybody's feelings by being like, I think so and so will win. Um, but like, yeah. and then I, but all these books are great. And I feel like yeah. if any one of them wins, I'll be excited because it's like, yes, this is, this is good. Like totally worthwhile. All of these books. Yeah, definitely. They really are. There's another interesting piece of news that we have. Mm-hmm. EB's a boy is coming out with a new book called Nigeria Jones. Cover looks amazing. It's stunning. Yes. I'm really excited about this book. I I don't think I knew. I don't know if this was like the announcement or if like the book was announced and now we get like the summary and synopsis and the cover. But either way, I didn't know that this was coming. And it, I was like, well, this looks amazing. It immediately jumped on my TDR. Yes. I had no idea it was coming out, but it looks super good. So Nigeria Jones is about Nigeria, who is this homeschooled black teen who has grown up in a family that is part of um, a movement called The Movement. And it's a black separatist group, and it's based in Philadelphia. 
And it's basically, it sounds like what happens when her mom disappears and her world is upended and she finds herself kind of exposed to um, like a Quaker school and different ideas and what she grew up with. So I think this sounds really amazing on her Mm -hmm. Instagram. Evie's boy wrote, this is my ode to spiritual girls, black utopias, hippies, bohemians, body autonomy, Philadelphia history, the Haitian revolution and the U S constitution. Oh, amazing. (laughs) Well, all right then. (laughs) okay i was not expecting well what was i expecting i wasn't expecting anything i guess but it definitely wasn't that that sounds interesting that sounds different yeah i am very intrigued interesting okay i am very intrigued yeah the history of philadelphia what are they doing in philadelphia (laughs) (laughs) what they got going on in philadelphia we're gonna find out (laughs) we're gonna find out courtesy of eb is a boy yeah, appreciate that. Yes, that is that sounds super interesting, though. I'm excited for that. Me too. So today's topic, um, <laughs> Erica coming in with all the good ideas. I'm trying booty fiction. Just because I like to eat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, this is convenient because I love to eat too. <laughs> yes, that's why. That's why we like each other. Probably it's why we connect. We connect, even though we can't like eat food together. We yeah. we. I feel like every time there's a book where there's like a lot of really good food descriptions, we're both swooning. So yeah, absolutely. So there's been a lot of foodie fiction, I think, coming out in in like not just YA, but in mm-hmm. books in general. You're seeing a lot more, and I have to wonder too, like because I see a lot of like baking competition yeah. books lately in both YA and adult romance, and even middle grade. And I feel like the Great British Bake Off is finally. Yeah like seeped its way through into the literary movement of of influence i don't even know what i'm saying now i'm just saying words but (laughs) the words are wording i understand what you're saying (laughs) it's it's early still i still Mm -hmm. have my coffee (laughs) yes you're good but um i guess my big question to you is what do you consider like what what's what's the definition of foodie fiction oh that's a good question i feel like it can be any book that has like food at its that stresses the importance of food. So it doesn't necessarily have to be something like like a baking competition, like a rom com that's set at a baking competition, or um, like say I know some YA novels are like oh like their family has a food truck or something. Yeah. Um, So it doesn't necessarily have to be that, although, of course, those are definitely foodie fiction. I just think that it has these like vivid descriptions of food throughout Mm -hmm. or food is like a big part of it in some way. So, yeah, basically, if food is a big part of it in some way, it could be anything. And I I would consider it foodie fiction. What about you? What do you think? Uh, Yeah, I would agree with that. And looking at our list of books that we have picked out, Mm -hmm. um, we have a little bit of everything. Yes. Like from contemporary to like more lightly magical to like full on fantasy. Yeah. And I think that's kind of exciting because like, you know, the joke is that what makes fantasy fantasy is like an absolute sort of like reverence of food and food descriptions and (laughs) obviously that's not true for like everything and everyone but 
I do love a good fantasy novel that uh, just really relishes in food descriptions. And I am somebody who really loves food. I live and I've always lived in small towns where there's not a lot of you know, just like food diversity, Mm -hmm. although my current town right now is very diverse. So we do have some really exciting food options that I've never seen before in a very small Midwestern town. And that's exciting. But my my point is that like, I have learned that like, whenever I venture away from my fold, I'm always like, let's try something new. Let's try eat some like really good food that I can't get back at home. Yeah, And I, that has in part been influenced by the fact that like, I will read books with like wonderful, glorious descriptions of amazing food. And mm-hmm. I think like, well, I want to try that. So that's what I love about foodie fiction. <laughs> yes. I, a couple things. I'm easy. I am easily influenced. So when I read <laughs> these books, I I live currently in a place where the food is pretty, uh, fairly pretty diverse. I think. So I remember this wasn't a YA book, but it was the one. Uh, it was the ugh, I'm blanking on the name, but it was like I think she accidentally commits murder or something, and her family is um are they Malaysian? Oh, Dial A Ferrantes. Yes, it, p- perfect. Yes, Tirza. <laughs> Yes, ding, 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 A+. A for aunties by Jessie Cusatanto, who's yeah. also a YA author whose yep. books I've touted here, but that's her adult debut. Yeah, I was like, she started, she got this talking about food. I was like, let me go get some drunken noodles real quick. <laughs> I was like trying to get the closest thing. I was like, oh, and it, it the, the gag is that it was like delicious. So it wasn't like, oh, I just got hyped because of this book. I was like, oh no, that was a, that was a good choice. I'm going to do this again next week. Oh yeah. I, I feel like you maybe have touched on the sci-fi versus fantasy debate a little bit when you described. <laughs> I was like, oh, I, I mean that. to, but <laughs> you just went there. <laughs> I was like, should I go there? Is so is fantasy for you? Is it like vivid food descriptions and sci-fi is I mean, not necessarily. I, I didn't you, mean I to you. like wade into that very contentious debate. <laughs> um, and in fact, I personally think that vivid food descriptions belong in any yeah. any sort of genre. I don't know if you ever watched Firefly back in the day. I did way, way, oh, like when it yeah. first came out, when it first, like in 2000, I loved it. I was like 10. Right? I love that show too. Um, Joss Whedon's problematic AF, but I do. Oh, I haven't watched it since. I don't even know. I don't even remember what was problematic, but I'm sure. Oh, no, no. Joss Whedon is not. Oh, I Joss mean, Whedon. Yeah. I'm not sure if. I I mean, I haven't watched Firefly in a long time, but okay. Basically what I'm getting at is Firefly exists in the sci-fi world where like resources are scant and basically they're eating like nutrients bars to survive. Yeah. And at one point we meet one of the main core characters who barters his way onto his ship with a box of strawberries. And then you see a character, she hasn't had a strawberry in so long and she eats one and her face is just like, Oh my gosh, this is wonderful. And like, I felt that to my core. So, I mean, I think like you can have, but that's the power of food though. Like Mm -hmm. we all have to eat. And I know not all of us appreciate food in the same way, but I love when you can be writing about like any genre, but all characters like have that appreciation for food or that deep sort of abiding love because a lot of, for a lot of us, food is more than just food. 
Yeah. So, and I think you can pull it off in any genre. Yeah. Food is like, a lot of times I feel like food is very deeply tied to language. Yeah. And culture. Yes, exactly. Culture and language. Like I've learned, I very briefly dabbled in different languages, like in college or whatever. And it's just so interesting how each language has their own relationship with food that's very strong. So it's like you learn about like the history of people through their food because what was available to them throughout history and even now, et cetera, et cetera. You see that in their cuisine, what kind of dishes they make. And then the words kind of form around the dishes to, you know, describe what they yeah. are. So it has a, food has a deep connection to words and therefore literature and books and everything like that. And it's really great. And obviously I like to eat. <laughs> <laughs> I clearly have an appreciation. So yes, foodie fiction is great. Also, it's very comforting, I think, to yes. read. And this is a great, like, comforting, cozy season. I mean, it's great to read all year round, of course, but I think uh, for me, especially I'm kind of a seasonal reader. I feel like this is such a great time to indulge in some some comforting, foodie, uh, cozy reading, you know? Indulge, yes. <laughs> yes, indulge. But yes, I like the first choice you have. Oh, I knew you would. <laughs> <laughs> it made me choose one that was kind of similar along the same vein, uh, genre. I was like, oh, Okay, Teresa, I see you. Well, (laughs) yes. So this is a really great segue. I'll talk about my first pick, which is Six Crimson Cranes by Elizabeth Lim. And we have talked about this book a lot on the show. I know you probably like, okay, we get it. It's amazing. I'll go read it. In which case, yes, our our work here is done. Our work here is done. (laughs) (laughs) But... One thing that I think is definitely present in this book that you don't really get from like the publisher description or summary is the fact that like food is really important. Mm -hmm. So the book is about Shiori, who is a princess in this um, land where um, magic is sort of feared and she has this magical ability to animate inanimate objects and her stepmother also seems to have magic. And um, when she discovers that she is magical and that she might also be evil, um, Shiori and her brothers are cursed. And so Shiori's cursed to wear this bucket over her head. And she's cursed with like a certain amount of silence. Like she can't say what's happened to her. Her brothers are cursed to turn into cranes and Shiori and her brothers are banished from the castle and Shiori finds herself on this journey to try and break the curse and stop her stepmother before it's too late. So like that's kind of like the basic outline. But what's really great about this book is when she is banished from her home and she's got this it's like a bowl or it is a not it's a bowl, not a bucket. She's wearing this bowl over her head. Everybody thinks that like, you know, she is maybe a bit dim-witted and she can't talk half the time. So she basically makes her way in the world by cooking and by working as a cook. And she is really a very good cook and that's in part because before her mother died she and her mother used to work in the kitchens together and they shared this love of food and of cooking so even though she's this um princess she knows how to cook really well and that is actually very important to the book um especially as the plot gets going and 
ma- magical shenanigans happen. Shiori's ability in the kitchen is very important. And it also is like important to her on a personal level. So there were some beautiful food descriptions in this book. I immediately wanted to go out and find a place where I could eat glass noodles. Like just, oh, so good. Yes. You're also impressionable like me. Yes. (laughs) Yes, I am. I will totally go eat food based off of something I've read or seen lately. Yes. I've done it a few times, quite a few times. (laughs) Yes. Definitely recommend this book if you are like into a sort of high fantasy mood, but like you also want to read about some good food. Mm Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I feel like I tend to, it's interesting too, like, I know uh, Elizabeth Lim's other books, uh, especially the, um, the I'm blanking on the name, but the duology she did before. Oh, Spin the Dawn. Yes, thank you. When the character goes on a journey, sometimes food is scarce. And so when they come across it, they, they're kind of like the lady with the strawberry and firefly at times. Yeah. And then there then there are times where they're in a in like the palace and food is plentiful and you know masterfully um created. So it's interesting the duality of that. But yes. Totally. I will always cheer on Elizabeth Lim all day, every yeah. day. Um, so the first one I have is actually a contemporary romance, which I don't always get into, you know, for some reason. The cover of this is so, so pretty. It's called Cafe Con Lychee by Emery Lee. And it's about like two, so two boys, their parents are, they're basically like arch rivals, right? <laughs> so Theo Mori, he wants to get away from his, his Asian American cafe. Well, not, it's not his, it's his parents, let me say. Um, because, you know, you're a child, <laughs> when you're a child and your parents own a restaurant, chances are um, they're probably going to make you right, work in the restaurant. I mean. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, they just, their parents are just going to get free labor out of you regardless. So he's like, I'm sick of this. And he wants to get away. His plan for getting away is going to college. And so he also doing that also means getting away from Gabby Moreno, who is his arch rival family's son, right? So they're kind of like somewhat in the same boat in a way. But Gabby is actually not out yet, and he's into dance and stuff like that, but he's forced to play soccer, and he kind of hides his true um, his true interests. And Theo is kind of like the only guy that's out at his school. So as you can imagine, the two of them are going to, you know, on some Romeo and Juliet but like with food (laughs) type of situation. Um, So those two things create static between them, obviously. I should say, I I mentioned before that Theo is Asian American and Gabby is Puerto Rican. His parents have a Puerto Rican uh, bakery. And as I mentioned before with parents and restaurants, they want him to take it over after he graduates. So um, Theo's family is struggling and... Moreno's, the Moreno's, they want to, they end up wanting to sell their bakery because there's some competition in town. But then Theo gets this idea 
and he wants to basically like sell food at the school, like deal some deal some noodles at school real quick between lunch breaks or whatever, um, yeah. to kind of like save the restaurant. So then he gets Gabby in on it. And then they start helping each other. So it's like they were arch rivals before and they start getting to know each other. And, you know, the sparks, they fly. The food is delicious. The cover is gorgeous. And they're both pretty. I don't know. That's just an aside. (laughs) (laughs) These are pretty boys. Okay. So, yes, it's a fun, good, nice time. I mean, even the cover has like all this like delicious looking food on it. So, you know what time it is. Um, as far as that goes. Um, so yes, it is again, Cafe Clonlaichi by Emery Lee. Amazing. So my next pick is Hungry Hearts, 13 Tales of Food and Love. And it's an anthology edited by Elsie Chapman and Caroline Tung Richmond. And it has a bunch of different authors, including um, Cynthia Menon, um, Anna Marie McLemore, Rin Chupeco, there's I'm, so many, and I'm probably forgetting all who's in here. Oh, Rebecca Rowanhorse. Yeah, like just some really awesome people. So this is a really clever anthology, and I feel like it probably took a lot to pull off, so I'm impressed. Because it not only is a collection of short stories about food, and not just food, but like food and culture, but it's also like intertwine short stories so and it's all takes place in the same fictional neighborhood in a unnamed city and it's called hungry hearts row and it's basically like this neighborhood of amazing eclectic diverse eateries and restaurants and so each short story takes place in hungry hearts row and sometimes you see characters kind of crossing over um, but each author writes their own take and so Some of them might just be like, you know, teenagers figuring out how to express themselves, dealing with romance and and romantic troubles, but then also dealing with family stuff and grief and loss. And it's all about how food and cooking and, you know, ingredients and like really what you were saying, Erica, like the the connection between food and culture or food and identity can mm. be really healing. So mm. I read this anthology a couple of years ago. It's so lovely. And the cover of the paperback especially is very delicious looking. It has a bunch of different food on the cover, but this is a really clever anthology. Like there are a lot of YA anthologies out there yeah. nowadays, um, which is awesome because basically short stories are really quick, easy reads and, there's so many on so many different topics, but I feel like this anthology is really clever because of all of the intertwined characters and, and how they all kind of mesh together. So that is Hungry Hearts, 13 Tales of Food and Love, edited by Elsie Chapman and Caroline Tung Richmond. Awesome. That sounds really good. And I, yeah, I, the way my attention span is set up, I do love a good short story collection. You can pick it up and put it down. I just did an extra credit episode last week on a couple short story collections. Nice. Yes. So it's like perfect timing. And also you get a sample of different people's writing. So then um, you can be like, oh, I think I will continue with this person. I'll find a book by them, et cetera, et cetera. But that, that lineup sounded really good too. It's a good lineup. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Underlined. Haven't read a Natasha Preston thriller yet? We dare you to try. She's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like The Cellar and The Fear. The New York Times and USA Today bestselling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers. So her newest book titled The Dare is about five friends whose senior prank goes very, very wrong. This is the perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare. The Dare is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more about it at getunderlined.com. So again, this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong. There are dark secrets, a twisty plot, and creepy I know what you did last summer vibes. So if you, you know, it's graduation season, you want to revel in that, but like make it scary. You know what I mean? Pick up The Dare by Natasha Preston. And thanks again to Underline for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. So the next one I have is With the Fire on High by Elizabeth Mm. Acevedo. And one thing that I have to say, this is another gorgeous cover because the covers are covering there. It's just so pretty. It's like a brown skinned lady and there's like fruit around her. The color scheme is is everything. It's just super pretty. So gorgeous. It's so cute. Both of these covers, are, I'm just like, oh, I'm gagging over here. Um, what I like about this, though, too, is that it deals with a girl, a high school senior, Imani Santiago, who has a kid. And I'm like, I don't see that much in YA fiction. It's true. Like, you know, if there are books, I mean, I'm just like, I never really hear about that. But that's real. Like, you know, teenage pregnancy happens. So just as like a tiny aside, because I feel like you saw that more in like YA issue books of like 10 and 15 years ago. Yes. What I love about With a Fire on High is she has a kid, but this is not a book about how yes. she becomes pregnant and has this kid. Like the book starts and her kid's like two. Yeah. She, it's about her, you know, living with it and how she how she handles it. Yeah, it's about her living with it, how she hands, handles it, and about her trying to achieve her dreams with her child and her grandmother, her abuela, to support. And so, that yeah, that's such a good point. And when I think about those books, I'm just like, when you said like the issue books from like 10 to 15 years ago, I'm thinking too, even when I was like in, still going to, you know, public school, still in middle and middle school and high school, and like looking at the school library books. And when you said that, 
it immediately brought to mind a specific kind of book that would have like a specific kind of like depressing kind of cover. I don't know if you yes. know, you know oh, what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, it would just be so like dismal to look at. And I'm like, is that why I gravitated toward like fantasy books a lot of times? Because I would be judging things by the cover. As oh, I yeah. Still do. Um, but you're so right. Like, I feel like, it, I don't know, it's so interesting. People only see certain things a certain way. And I'm just like, if you just open your eyes and look around, like, you know, you can get inspiration from real life. And people, some people have kids in high school and some people, you know, get abortions and all these different things. And exactly. we live with them and we keep on, keep it moving. So, yes, great point. So Imani, she uh, has a lot going on. She's a high school senior. She has a daughter, like you said, it's a couple of years. The daughter's a couple of years old, and she's also trying to help her granny. And the, the one thing she loves, though, she loves to cook. Okay, she loves to cook. She's very good at it. And when her school gets this new culinary class, she is like, I got to take this class. She's super interested in it um, because that's just something she wants to do. But she also knows that with a small child at home and her not coming from money, she doesn't necessarily have money for the class, especially for their trip to Spain that they're going to do later. So... She starts to try to basically um, achieve her dreams of taking this class, you know, cooking more. Um, she loves to bake. She loves to do just different kinds of cooking. And we, this book is about her, you know, trying to achieve her dreams with everything going on. You have some, uh, you have a love interest, Malachi. Mm-hmm. And he's very, like, sweet and nice and everything. But he's also one good thing about Acevedo's characters. It's, like, they're pretty real, I feel. Yeah. He's not, like, a perfect person. He has, like, his insecurities and stuff like that. Imani's dad is also not around. So that's another issue that she's dealing with. Um, So um, the writing also is, like, really nice, I feel. Like I said, like, it's... You have like realistic characters, you have nice writing, you have um, realistic circumstances. And so it's just, and then you have, I think each, it's been a minute since I read it, but each section starts with like a recipe. So right there, you're getting grounded in the food aspect of it and, and seeing the importance of what Imani finds to be important. So... Yeah, I feel like it, the the young child are having a kid. I feel like that makes it unique among YA novels of that have been recently released. Yes. But yeah, so again, that's With the Fire on High by Elizabeth Acevedo. Yeah, and what I love about that book too is it's a book where you like the conflict is all like real life challenges and about her like finding her way there's not like this big bad or there's not like this overwhelming obstacle of like specific i don't know real it's not like she has to win a competition or do anything like that it's it's more about her finding her way and i think those types of books without like the flashy plot are sometimes harder to pull off but she does it so well and it's such a satisfying book and yeah it's so fantastic so i just had to add that (laughs) 
All right. My next pick is a graphic novel, and it is called Bloom. It's written by Kevin Panetta, and it's illustrated by Savannah Ganusho. And what I love about this is that it is a baking graphic novel. It is about Ari, who lives above this classic Greek bakery that his parents own, and it's been passed down in his family. And his dad clearly wants him to help out in the bakery. It's kind of struggling a little bit, but he has no interest. He's recently graduated from high school and he just wants to like move into the city with his band and do literally anything but help his family's bakery out. So he is trying to find somebody to replace him at the bakery so he can move away. And that's when he meets Hector, who is this very easygoing, very nice guy who has recently taken leave from culinary school. And he has some, you know, family issues that he's dealing with. He's kind of has recently lost his grandmother. He's settling his grandma's estate. He's not really sure what he wants to do next, if he wants to go back to culinary school or if he wants to do something else. And it was, I mean, it's kind of like this difficult, weird situation where both of them are not really sure what's going to happen next. And then Ari hires Hector and Hector has passion for baking that clearly Ari does not have. And Hector is really good at what he does there in the family bakery. There are some beautiful scenes within this graphic novel of, of just like cooking and baking. And especially there's this one spread where Ari's parents are stretching out and rolling out the phyllo dough. And it's like this very beautiful collaborative process. It's kind of looks like this dance. And I just thought how, you know, that was like a really kind of nice homage to the love and the care that goes into this type of work. So there is a lot of like angst in this book. There's a little bit of um, family drama, but then there's also like this big question of like, what are they going to do next? Like, what does the future hold? Not only for them, but also for the bakery. So this is a really lovely graphic novel. It's kind of dreamy. It's all done in like these sort of cool blue green tones. I really enjoyed it. And that is Bloom by Kevin Panetta and Savannah Ganusho. That sounds really good. That sounds right up my alley. I love a dreamy um, graphic novel. And I've been reading a lot of graphic novels lately. Um, So yeah, that sounds really good. So the next one I have, um, when I saw you had mentioned Six Crimson Cranes, I was like, that's such a good idea. Because sometimes, like I was saying, like, I and I do think too, like... The foodie fiction does not have to be um, just strictly about food, but that, like we said in the beginning, it plays a significant role. And then so seeing Six Crimson Cranes on your list, I was like, oh, that makes me think of A Magic Steeped in Poison by Judy I. Lynn. And that's kind of a similar, um, like, you know, fantasy novel that's very heavily steeped in Asian culture. And this one in particular is about the ancient Chinese art of tea brewing, which is really cool. And I like how it, like Chinese people do have an ancient art of tea brewing and that 
actual history is like interwoven within this fantastical story. And basically it's about Ning who lost her mother in like the worst way possible. I say the worst way possible because she was the one who killed her in a way, not in a way, kind of, yes, in accidentally. So she unknowingly brewed this tea that ended up being poisoned and her mother drank it. And now um, her mother has passed away. And so book opens that has already happened and now the same tea um comes to threaten her sister's life her sister Shu. so there is this there's a way that she could reverse this um you know stop her sister from dying in the same way that her mother did and that is to get a favor from the princess. But the way to do that is to win a competition. It's a competition that the kingdom holds. It's to find the greatest Shinongshi, which is basically master of the ancient and magical art of tea making. And I like that. I feel like kind of like what you were saying about Bloom, how it's like, the art of making food. Oh, and I should say, this is not like food food. This is tea making. But I, I feel like it's, you know. It yeah, it counts. I, I, I didn't feel like it was a stretch. I was like, I feel I'm I'm grouping that together. You know, um, food, refreshments. They're such a big part of culture. Tea is very big, obviously. There's a whole, there's a whole like art to it. So I feel like with this one, the fact that magic is incorporated into it and it's like the magic system is kind of built around tea or tea is like just a part of the magic system. I think that, again, talks to um, how magical, magical, I'm being a little redundant, but how much importance things like this hold in culture. And I like how I like the descriptions of magic and stuff. And this is another one with a pretty cover. Y'all already know how I do, how I operate. <laughs> so she, so Ning wants to enter this competition basically to um, save her sister's life. So she travels to the Imperial city for this competition. And of course, with any kind of competition like this is very much giving like, Oh, geez, why am I blanking? Not Great British Bake Off, but like more like backstabbing RuPaul's Drag Race <laughs> or like Project Runway. Kind of reminds me of uh, Spin the Dawn by Elizabeth Lim. There was that little competition, and well, not a little competition, it was a big part of the first part of the book. But there's backstabbing, there's court politics as usual. And then there's um, a guy who's kind of cute and he's like a little mysterious, which makes him cuter. And so he's there too, complicating things, of course. And so, yeah, this type of thing is like super duper up my alley. And I think it has wonderful descriptions of the tea making. It incorporates an actual, you know, like, you know, Chinese tea making practice, which is really cool. And it's magical, it's fun, it's got the little romance. So yeah, I think it's I think it's pretty cool. So again, that's A Magic Steeped in Poison by Judy Island. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Yes. And I love the idea of taking those tea traditions and, mm -hmm. and really making them come out of 
you know, new slant with fantasy. It sounds really fun. Yes, exactly. All right. My next pick is um, full disclosure, a book that I have not read yet, but it's been sitting on my TBR for a while. And it sounds like it is perfect for this um, topic. So it is My Fine Fellow by Jenica Cohen. And it is a retelling of My Fair Lady, Gender Swapped. And it's set in 1830s England. And it's about three culinarians who basically are hired by society's elite to create the most spectacular and wonderful flavorful food. So Helena Higgins is one of the um, protagonists. She is top of her class at the Royal Academy. She knows that she is like on the brink of making it um, as a culinary um, artist, but she just needs to like, produce that one beautiful final project, basically. Penelope Pickering is also really passionate about food, but she's also really passionate about proving to London's high society that flavors from other parts of the world are amazing and deserve to be valued. So she has Filipina um, background and she uses that Filipina heritage to bring food you know, just to add excitement and flavor to her food that a lot of the London elite have never seen before. And then the third person in this book is Elijah Little. And he is Jewish and he has an excellent instinct for flavor and for patisserie. But being Jewish in 1830s London is not always the easiest thing. And he knows that he will never be able to own his own shop. So he sells his baked goods on the street, um, basically for just like shillings. And so Penelope and Helena encounter Elijah and they are like, hmm, I've got an idea. Let's let's turn him into a proper gentleman baker or gentleman chef. And we'll wow London society and we all will get what we want. So you can kind of see the My Fair Lady, you know, kind of parallels there. Right. So I think that this sounds wonderful. I really, really, really love Jenica Cohen's first book, Dangerous Alliance. So My Fine Fellow, foodie fiction, sort of not quite Regency, but like, Mm. you know, those Bridgerton vibes because this takes place in the 1830s. But all of that, like, high society, but with food and excitement and also diversity because I love that the author is showing that, you know, people who are Filipina, Jewish people, like, did exist in 1830s London. You don't get to see them as much in those, like, Mm -hmm. Bridgerton-esque type retellings. I mean, Bridgerton, the Netflix show, obviously has blind casting, but... Bridgerton, the actual books are pretty white. And a lot of books in that um, set in that time period are pretty white too. So this is just a lovely little confection that stands apart. Mm. Ooh, <laughs> yeah. Very well done. My fine fellow. It sounds really good. I found out like with the Bridgerton thing, you know, people being upset with um, so-called, I guess, race switching or whatever. This is an, a bit of an aside. Um, but I was reading an article that was saying that um, there were a lot more people of color than are than are than is represented in shows apart from Bridgerton. 
um, that take place in that time period. Like most, of, a lot of shows and movies that take place in that time period just show white people and like a black or brown people like in the background being servants or something. And I was seeing a thing that was saying like, no, there were actually way more people. So it's just, it's just, um, you know, just an aside. Cause I was like, oh, I didn't even know that. It's, mm-hmm. it's like, if you go by, you know, the shows and movies and stuff. And also it's like, as far as London, England goes, it's a, you know, you're a, um, a city in Europe. Um, so you would think it'd be mostly white people, but there were way more um, people of color than is shown in the media. For some reason, I don't know why they, I don't know why they don't show people. <laughs> what would I know about that? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that sounds really good, really interesting. And it's from a perspective that I have not heard of uh, for 1830s uh, England. So I'm super into that. The last one I have is A La Carte by Tanita S. Davis. And this one is a little older. And I was like, let me do one. I'm like, I feel like I usually focus on newer releases. But this one is about 17-year-old Lainey Dreams, who has the dream of becoming a chef one day. She's Black and she's a girl and so she knows like that would be kind of like there aren't that many black women chefs. I don't even know of any myself right now, actually. And but she also she loves Julia Child, but she wants to be like the vegetarian version of Julia Child. So uh, which is also like this book came out in like 2008. That didn't really exist either. So the book incorporates like recipes that she's working on and stuff like that. And I should also say that she is the only daughter actually of a California restaurateur. So I'm sure, you know, that has um, influenced her dream of having this career as a, a chef, as a vegetarian chef. And so she has this friend, Sim, who... So (laughs) Sim is a, their relationship is not the best and it unfortunately evolves into something more. This is not a spoiler. This is like a part of um, the blurb. So um, she has to work on, she has to kind of just figure herself out. She has this dream that she's working on and the book again incorporates her recipes and stuff. So it puts you right kind of like in her mind space, but also shows the other things like her complicated relationship with her mother, her issues with her own weight and how she wants to change things to be healthier for herself and stuff like that. And so it's just like, you know, it's a, it's realistic. Uh, She has, I feel like, her thought process is realistic to people that age. <laughs> and so you're just following her as she's trying to achieve her dream, figure things out. And I just, it's kind of a change of pace for me, which is welcomed. Um, so yeah. And that is A La Carte by Tanita S. Davis. That sounds delightful. Yeah. Oh, yay. So as much as we would like to, you know, keep chatting at you about more wonderful foodie fiction, we've got to go eat now. So (laughs) actually, actually, factually, though, 
Actually, actually, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> oh, yeah, I have not eaten in a little while, so I definitely need to go. I mean, after all this talk, you have to you do have something to. and buy or get like, yes. We defy you to not need to go get a little snack. Right okay, <laughs> exactly. Oh, thank you so much for tuning in. And you can always leave us feedback about the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Helps let us know how we're doing and it helps others find us. Feel free to email us at heyya at bookriot.com if you want to give us feedback or recommendations or suggestions or if you have any recommendation requests. And don't forget to visit bookriot.com for newsletters, more podcasts, and all things bookish. Thanks again to today's sponsors for making the show possible. And thanks to our awesome audio editor, Jen Zink. Um, You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I hang out at, at Tears of Price. And how about you, Erica? I'm on Twitter very occasionally at Erica underscore EZE underscore. Awesome. Well, we will be back in two weeks. And until then, happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading.